This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Well, what's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Today, we are starting a brand new quarterly co-host, and uh, it's going to be a technical one, people. Let's jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risplit. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Rebranding Safety is YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the tin. I'm James McPherson from Risk Fluent, and I don't have to tell you what Risk Fluent is because we've now got the little advert thing at the beginning, so that saves one thing to do. Yeah, you know what I mean? Today is a brand new quarterly co-host. We're doing three episodes on fleet safety, road traffic act safety legislation. It's a weird world. It's a different world. But many safety professionals end up getting it lumped onto them because I think a lot of the time we just think, well, it's just safety, but on the road. But the law is different, the enforcer is different, it's, it's loads of real, it's quite specific, it's quite, uh, what's the word, prescriptive. And as we'll find out, it's very technical. But we have a geek when it comes to this stuff, an absolute legend when it comes to this stuff. The one and only Pete Rushmer is going to come on for three episodes and I'll let him tell you all about what we're going to do over those three episodes in a minute but if you have taken on fleet I totally advise you get your pen you get your paper and you listen to this guy um, but without further ado let's jump into the episode oh god I just press record and now I'm yawning mate I've already started boring you yeah. <laughs> I should have I should have got that out before I press record literally I pressed record and it went boom have a, y- have a yawn <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Right. No worries, mate. Welcome to the... You actually haven't been on Rebound and Safety before, have you? No. Mate, how has that happened? I don't know. That, how has that happened? Has that, but I'm sure he asked you to come on a podcast before, but I might be wrong. Might I think be. you're wrong. <laughs> oh. I felt honoured when you did invite me, though. Thank you. Oh, well, mate. Only about six months after you came on my podcast. Six months? No, it wasn't. Was it bad? <laughs> I don't know. Tonight. I'm sorry, that's not intentional. It's fine. It's fine. I just, you know, it's we all just, good. We just got really desperate and we're like, oh, fucking hell, we're going to have to talk about like <laughs> management now, aren't we? <laughs> what What can we bore our listeners with? Now that we've got them engaged, what can we bore them most with? Oh, let's talk about fleet. Yeah, we've nice. had loads of feedback that, James, the podcast is way too exciting. Like, I, I can't concentrate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know what I'll do. I'll get Pete on. <laughs> Mate, that is not true at all. That is not true. Oh, <laughs> it took so long. Um, anyway, now we've introduced you as somebody really boring here to talk yeah. about boring concept. You actually want to introduce yourself and you're, you're doing a quarterly co-host and this is a slightly different one. I'm looking forward to this one. Um, so kind of introduce a concept of, of, of the whole thing and then kind of each individual episode, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, perfect, man. No, I appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, hi, listeners of Rebranding Safety. Uh, I'm honoured. I'm honoured to have been asked by James to to join as a quarterly co-host uh, for the next little while. We've got three awesome episodes lined up 
for listeners, uh, just to whet the appetite a little bit. Um, so a, a little bit about me. So uh, my name is Pete Rushman. I'm the founder of a business called Flagship Partners. And we do we do a range of services. Uh, we, we cross over into a bit of health and safety, but our, our core business is around uh, transport law and fleet operators. Um, we do a lot with uh, operators licenses. Uh, we do driver CPC training, which is uh, training that's required for HGV and bus drivers. Um, and we, we do first aid training. And uh, yeah, we've got a range of uh, a range of solutions, but predominantly in the fleet sector. And, um, you know, we, we've even started to build a community called Fleet Geeks. And I'll tell you a bit more about that as we sort of go through. Um, with regards to the next three episodes, today's first episode, we're going to be talking a bit about the different regulations around HGV and fleet management, which is like my my specialism so to speak or my team specialism we've got uh to get put it put you in the picture we've got a team of eight people of which five of them are qualified transport managers in my business and a lot of them are actually i would say more experienced than i am um and that they've all got their own different specialism so i'll tell you a bit more about them and what's involved but we'll be looking at that sort of regulatory law around hgvs we'll be talking about operator licensing we'll talk about traffic commissioners and uh, people people like that, the DVSA and the role they play as well. And then in the second episode, we're going to talk a bit more about transport managers, which is that role of supporting the fleet operation and also sort of the health and safety responsibilities that that, that, that role may entail. And in the third one, we're going to have... So I host a Fleet Geeks podcast with a couple of my team here at Flagship. And uh, we're going to do Fleet Geeks Invade in the third episode, which we're really excited about. And we're going to talk about what Fleet Geeks are doing, how they're building a community in the fleet in the fleet sector, um, and uh, look what, what the, the dent we're trying to make in the industry and um, uh, the impact we're trying to have for people with some of the solutions that we're that we're offering, uh, which hopefully will resonate with some of the rebranding safety listeners. Uh, does that sound like an okay introduction, James? Have I done all right there, mate? It's fine, mate. It was beautiful. It was. Was it? It was very well polished. Like, was it much better than what I do? I feel like you're right a rehearsal. I just, oh, mate, like, it felt like waffle to me. Oh, what? No, <laughs> listen to this podcast. I'd just be like, I'm going to talk about fleet and shit. Um, that's about it, really. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> honestly, I'm so bad. Like, if when people get us to do like formal, like you know, like hi, James, we love your podcast. We want you to get you to come on to like do a keynote. I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> like, I'm not nice. really good at this stuff at all. That was very nice, very well polished, mate. I feel like you, you're a radio host. Oh, really? Do you know what? When I was a when I was a kid, I actually wanted to be a TV presenter. Did yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, genuinely, uh, it's so interesting. I've not... So I never knew what I wanted to be. Yeah. I never knew what... Well, no, I did. I wanted to be a professional footballer. Right. And as you can see, I'm not built to be a professional <laughs> footballer. I've never been built to be a professional footballer. It was never going to happen. But it's interesting how, I, I guess, like the journey of life sort of puts you on a journey. And there's been, there's been certain, like, uh, really impactful things that have happened that have driven if you pardon the pun uh driven me into into sort of what we're, what we're doing now really and uh yeah and it's interesting that i do the podcast and stuff like that because one of the things i wanted to do i wanted to i wanted to do um tv news something like that that would have been great for me so yeah. how funny is that like you do loads of like like linkedin lives you do the podcast you do a new podcast i use this, this podcast and i wanted to be a journo and I was, I did my, um, 
what's it called? Work experience at like a local radio station, Connect FM. Boom. Yeah. Bang. Boom. I love that. Mate, mate, I did my uh I did my work experience at King's College in Cambridge and I was a chef. Because I, I thought I thought that I'd I thought that I was going to be a celebrity chef. Mate, this is fucking weird. I was actually a chef. Like I'm, really, there yeah. You go. yeah. So I trained to be. So I wanted to be a journo. I got told I couldn't fucking spell or write <laughs> shit. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I can't spell, and I don't know where an apostrophe goes. So journo- was that right with a W or yeah. right with an R? <laughs> <laughs> you can't write right. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, fine. I'll do something like with my hands and shit and I, I liked my music. So I, I ended up wanting to go into like theater, theater. My, my mate works as a, as a sound engineer and uh, he used to run it. He still does run his own company. Really successful. He's currently on tour with bed knobs and broomsticks. Like he's proper up there, like really hot, well-respected, knowledgeable as shit. And um, so I went to the music and then I did <clears throat> to train to be an electrician um, so that I could go and do lighting and theater. Um, but I, to finish my electrical qualification, I needed to do a second year on the job, like on the tools, like apprenticeship. It was different back then. And um, so you did one year in college, one year on the tools, you were done. And um, the year that I had on the tools apprenticeship, like less than 10% of our whole uh, year that did that course uh, got on the job tools. Like nearly all of us didn't get our complete qualifications. So I was like, what the fuck? So I liked cooking as a bit of a hobby. So I ended up getting a job in a pub, um, local pub and uh, trained to be a bit of a chef and then ended up getting a, a job in a, what I call a ping and ding, which is where you cook food by going beep, 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 ping. And like, Shit. I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Is this what chefing is now? Um, and um, yeah, fell into safety is a is a kind of long, short version of my wow. weird life. So how weird that those two overcross the kind of journalism yeah. slash media slash chefing slash now kind of safety in fleet and kind of fleet in safety. I like it. Yeah. Do you reckon? Do you reckon safety professionals came out of all the people who didn't know what they wanted to do, so ended up doing a shit job that they hated, so then ended up, ended up in safety. Is that kind of how this rolls. Maybe that. Well, do you know what? There, there is like a thing where safety professional. Nearly everyone says, "Oh, I kind of fell into safety because nobody fucking wakes up as a kid and goes, yeah, I want, <laughs> mum, I want to be a safety professional.' Yeah, like, no, I'm right. disappointed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're gonna take you out and socialise you, you weirdo. Yeah, let, let's get. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I love it. Oh, I love it. So, yeah, man. Anyway, let, let's uh, let's get on to after your flawless your flawless introduction to the concept. Let's get on to kind of fleet management because it it is different, right? I mean, I've only really actually I've, until I went into consultancy have not really dealt with fleet that much. I've dealt with like a fleet of cars, e.g., we've got like sales team on the road or consultants on the road or engineers on the road and and like small vans and shit, but never like HGV. And then first customer that we had for our own customer was within uh, the fleet sector um, distribution. And then a couple of subcontracting jobs that we had were like, were HGV. And I was like, 
oh yeah, this is kind of different, but kind of similar, but kind of different. And it was weird. And there are, there are some really clear legal differences. Well, not clear, but there are legal differences in the fact that like they're drivers. So like, you know, I can get a speeding ban tomorrow if I wanted to. Um, and that hits me. And that kind of still applies in the world of, of, um, of HGV driving as well. So I was like, you know what, this is quite an interesting topic. It's very different. I think there's a lot of people that would listen at Rebranding Safety that do manage fleet as part of their role or may end up managing fleet as part of their role. So I thought it'd be a good discussion for us to have. So that's kind of how we, how we ended up here. And then I am, I am mega looking forward to the last episode. Again, no offense to you. I just, I'm really excited about having, I really like when you have like a three-way conversation um, on the yeah. podcast it'll actually be a four-way because there's there's three fleet geeks and then yourself so yes uh but it's going to be fun it's going to be really good fun so yeah i um i think like road safety is a big passion and i never really knew why i, ne- I, I never really understood why uh i ended up i ended up doing this but there's a, there's a few things that have happened in the past, I guess, that have sort of led led me to where I am. And and interestingly, as I reflect back on um, when when I was younger, uh, my parents had one of these cars, like a it's called a Citroen Two CV. I don't know, you're probably quite young to remember a Citroen Two CV. Even if I was old enough, I don't even enjoy you, cars. You wouldn't admit it. So they had this Citroen Two CV, which if listeners are old enough to remember or they want to google it they were literally made of cardboard and um my family was sort of trundling along uh, we lived out sort of cambridge way and they were traveling in godmanchester and coming under an underpass in the citroen 2cv my mum and dad in the front uh me my sister and bro- older sister and brother in the back and i was about two and um there was um quite a severe quite a severe incident with with another vehicle in the wrong lane and um my mum was pregnant with my younger sister and um my older sister had her teeth a grown-up adult teeth uh knocked out and my brother had severe sort of back injuries and stuff and I was actually I was actually okay and I think that kind of that kind of affected me like don't crash the car daddy was kind of my thing every time we went out when I was a kid sort of growing up don't crash the car daddy um and it wasn't it wasn't their fault huh that's fucking traumatic. <laughs> I know, right? So I had I had that, and then there's sort of a there's, there's, it's really strange, sort of how over time, mm. like I was really poorly when I was like 18, and I've probably told the story many times before to people uh, on my podcast. But um, you know, I'd been in hospital for six weeks on a life support machine. I'd been really, really poorly. I'd had like a lung hemorrhage where my lungs had bled. Then they tra- treated me with this drug called Factor Seven, which is like a crash victim drug, and it caused uh, blood clotting in my lungs. So I'd had pulmonary embolisms. And uh, the way they treat that is with warfarin, which is rat poison, which thins the blood, right? So I'm like 18, trundling along, taking this warfarin, uh, having had a really traumatic experience of nearly dying and being in hospital and all that sort of thing. And a drunk driver was overtaking uh, another vehicle. I actually knew him from school. Uh, He was overtaking another vehicle on the straight near my house uh, in over just outside Cambridge where I was sort of, I'd gone back home with my parents to kind of recover. It was like a Friday night and I'm driving home and he's overtaking a car on my side of the lane and we're about to have a head-on collision and I've had to like divert. He's ended up in the ditch um, and it was all a bit of a mess. And I was just like, man, I'm, I'm like, I'm like done with this. Like, people this this shouldn't be happening so i've always had this like massively low tolerance for 
drink driving, road safety, that that kind of thing. And um, interestingly, when I I when I left the pub trade, I went into uh, working in body repair. Right. So I was I trained up as like a damage assessor. I worked with insurance companies. I understood how the workshop worked. So I kind of had this opening into like workshop mechanics, body repair, paint spraying, all sort of stuff like that as an assessor. And um, as I developed through that role sort of in my 20s, I ended up in a manager's role and I had to run this HGV. I had to run this truck. Um, And all of a sudden I was having to run uh, eight vehicles because there was eight depots and um, I I got sort of thrown in the deep end and I had no understanding what I was doing. If people are listening, I'm sure there'll be people in similar situations. So Mm. I wasn't running it even, it wasn't even a fleet of vehicles. I had an HGV, which carried vehicles that had been accident damaged into, into the workshop. And I had what's called a restricted operator's license that I didn't really understand anything about. And I heard about this guy called a traffic commissioner who I'd never heard of. Um, and I was about 25, having just taken on this, the general manager's role of this business, uh, where there's like 30 guys. And the least important thing to me was the running of this truck. Um, because I had the safety of everyone else. You've got the cosh, you know, like paint, you've got panel beaters, you've got power tools, you've got hand-arm vibration, you know, dust, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff that I was learning from a safety point of view. Uh, and then this this like scissor lift truck, which uh, one of my drivers got stopped and they were overweight um, and they got penalised and I didn't really understand that either. Um, and then we had to go about weighing vehicles before they got bought in. Um and I, I kind of had this baptism of fire, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then and then the owner of the body shop, he he sold up. He sold to a national company um, who I refused to work for because they're a bunch of pricks. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I went to work for Volvo, who aren't a bunch of pricks. And I went to work for Volvo Trucks. I don't ask who it was now, but I would not want you to answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. No, I've got no issue because the company know. went pop. The company went pop anyway. So... The other thing is, is like the ethics are really strong for, in me as well. And that was the reason I didn't want to work for that national company. They're, they've gone pop now. They don't exist anymore. They're called Nationwide Crash Repairs. And they they were heavily involved in what's called an average repair cost model. Right. So this is where this is where your accident damaged vehicle. So we're talking about road safety, right? Your, your accident damaged vehicle, you could have had smashed up. And you've got, I don't know, like a 15 grand BMW that's got five grand worth of damage on the front end. And the accident repair centre are only getting paid 1,200 quid average repair to repair that vehicle that should cost six grand to repair. This is still going on, by the way, in the accident repair sector. People just don't know about it. So that was why I left. I, I, I'm confused. So, so it, the amount of the extent of the damage is like 60k's worth of work, but they're, they're what, making it roadworthy for 12? Yeah, so basically, yeah. So how average repair cost model works, and it, like I say, this is still prevalent, so check your insurer and check your insurance documentation because people don't realise it. And it's a massive reason I left the, left the business, the industry. So generally speaking, if you've got a vehicle that's three years or older, right, the, the scrap value of that vehicle is probably around 20% of the value of it, right? So yeah. let's, take, let's take a 20 grand car, right? So you've got a fairly decent family saloon, German model, let's say a BMW 5 Series, right? And it's a few years old and it's worth 20 grand, right? Right. The scrap value of that vehicle is probably around five grand, six Uh grand maybe. It might be a bit different in today's market, which means generally speaking, an insurer would probably only repair up to about 10 grand, 
maybe a bit more on that vehicle because once the estimate comes in to repair it at 10 grand, you've probably got a 10% leeway for fluctuation in parts costs or finding additional damage on that vehicle, right? And obviously the scrap value is that they'll get five grand for it if they just sold it for scrap, right? So they kind of do this calculation. Anyway, in the background, a lot of these insurers have deals with accident repair centers where they pay an average repair cost. This is called an average repair cost model to drive down the cost of insurance, right? And what that means is, is if your car has just got a wing mirror scratch or a wing mirror knocked off and it costs 100 or 200 quid to repair it. Yeah. They'll pay 100 quid for it. If it just needs a bumper blowing, that's only worth 100 quid off more a bumper blowing is probably like three four hundred quid now probably with the cost of materials but you get my, my idea so they're making margin on that right right however if that accident damaged vehicle has got six grams worth of repairs on it and it needs four grams worth of parts and two grams worth of labor for example that accident repair center will still only get 1200 quid for that repair right so what then happens in the workshop or by the management is they lead their team of people. You should get an accident repair specialist in. Anthony Anthony Hurd would be a great person for you to speak to, actually, about this. He's a big advocate for it on uh, LinkedIn, if you, if you follow him. Yeah. Um, and basically, yeah, that, so essentially that body repair centre is looking at whatever way they can cut corners in repairing that vehicle to put it back on the road because it's right. a loss leader. So like it starts, uh, okay, yeah. I, I get, I get what it like. Yeah, I get it now. So like, there, you, you, if you're the body repair center, you're you're basically taking more money, hoping that you never have a big incident car, a big damaged car come through. Yeah. And but in theory, you should be putting this money aside for when that big one comes through. But nobody does, right? No one does anything like That's that. That's not business. That doesn't make business sense, does it? Bus- no, business is about making margin, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and I suppose you couldn't. If you're going to put the money aside, the model's flawed, isn't it, really? Because if you put the money aside, it will be classed as profit and you'll get taxed on it a shitload anyway. So you, your accountant is probably going to turn around and say you need to do something with that money. So you might invest it as something or train your team up or, or whatever. So, yeah, the model is flawed. But then, like you say, it then encourages the wrong behaviours. So you end up getting cars held together, but with duct tape, right? And with you, with you. Pretty much, pretty yeah. much. So, anyway... I've set the landscape, right? And then I go and work for Volvo and I learn a lot more about HGVs and stuff like that. But anyway, I think, I think I've kind of gone a roundabout way of saying essentially HGV and buses, like fleet management, it's like a whole new kettle of fish. So yeah. one of the questions is what, what's operator licensing? Well, essentially to be able to operate a vehicle that's over three and a half tonnes. So if you people who are not particularly okay with vehicles, vans, that kind of thing. If you think of your long wheelbase sprinter that you see the Amazon guys running around in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're under three and a half tons, right? Right. So they're largely unregulated. They just work, operate under what's called, it's called something called GB domestic rules. Okay. Right. And uh, that governs the time that they're uh, allowed to work for, which there's no way of really keeping track of because right. there's not a tachograph which monitors time um and so anything that or below for work purposes isn't doesn't fall under operator licensing anything that's over three and a half tons so bigger than a van falls under operator licensing apart from it is a bit complex because 
if you run a combination of van and trailer that's over three and a half ton, that may fall within operator licensing. Okay, now, right. Okay. So if you run a pickup truck that pulls a trailer, so for example, one of our clients, she won't mind me mentioning, she does horse recovery. Uh, we don't work with her anymore um, for, for, for various reasons, mainly because we couldn't continue to manage that contract. But she, a lovely lady, she recovers horses um who may be on roadside stuff like that so she gets called she has a pickup truck and a trailer um, and she would go and pick those people up for hire or reward and she needed an operator's license she actually had to have a taco fitted to the pickup truck for that it it gets quite complex and that doesn't fall into lgv yeah so well here's here's a whole other other thing so lgv lcv hgv are all are all like different acronyms for basic LGV and HGV. It basically is the same thing: large goods vehicle or HG, heavy goods vehicle. Basically, the same thing. Oh really? Oh right. Yeah, there's a Fleet Geeks episode where we've literally just done dispelling the acronyms of because you get PSV and PCV and bus. So passenger carrying vehicle PCV is a bus. <laughs> It's just fucking barmy, mate. I love, I love shit like that. Uh, yes, yeah, so I've got a, a PTV license, <laughs> fucking bus license. No, no, it's a, no, it's not dumb you. It's a PTV license. Yeah, and then don't even get me into driver's license classification. So um, a driver's a drive. So a goods vehicle, a goods vehicle uh, on a driving license is category C for a rigid vehicle, or C and E for a vehicle and trailer combination. Um, and then a bus is category D. Um, but interestingly, on a category C, that's classed as a class two license, whereas a C and E, where they pull a, tra- a trailer as well, that's a class one license because there's different classes of drivers. Right. And then so, within HGV, the, the HGV is a different classes, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And then there's different types of operators' license as well. So um, to give you, to give, is it, is it sorry, is a this is this is kind of why we're doing this because yeah, yeah, but like no, I don't know, it's cool. An operator license is different from a driver license. Yes. Right. So if I wanted to say drive like an eight eight wheeler or or like an Arctic, the licenses yeah. will be different. But I would require operator license to a certain level and a driver's license to a certain level. The the driver's license qualifies you to drive to drive the vehicle, um, but you don't just get a driver's license to be able to drive that vehicle. You also have to have a DQC card, a driver qualification card, which is what the EU rules are around driver CPC training, which is what we offer. Um, but let's sort of stick to the simple stuff, right? So an eight wheel tipper. So if you think of like a muckaway eight wheel tipper that you see like a dump truck that you grew up with as a kid, right? Yeah. Uh, that is, you would need a category C license to drive that vehicle. It's got four axles on it two of which are driven, the two rear axles are driven and the two front ones are steer. Uh, That, generally speaking, is a 32-tonne vehicle. So that can operate up to 32-tonne. The vehicle itself normally weighs around 12-tonne and it will carry about 20 tonnes worth of payload, generally speaking, give or take a few uh, tonne. Obviously, that can never be over 32-tonne. If that ever got weighed, the driver would be in trouble and the operator would be in trouble. say that because that's quite... Thing is, if you're driving like an eight-wheeler tipper from, yeah. say, like a quarry to the aggregates waste sorting site, yeah. whatever, 
and, and you overload your your yeah. bucket or whatever on the back. Yeah. It takes you over 32 turn. They can get in trouble for that, can't they? Yeah, they can. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. That that'll come a bit later. Save yeah. me sort of darting around. We'll talk about that in a bit when we Sorry. talk about the drive drive stuff. No, 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 that's cool. But it's good to raise that awareness. And then uh Arctic, um, which is like the we call them a tractor unit, which has like the fifth wheel on the back that the trailers go on. So you'll see them trunking up and down the motorway, like your DHL trucks, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um they're 44 ton. Generally speaking, if they've got a three-axle trailer um, and a three-axle unit, um, and you need a Class CE license or a Class One license to be able to drive those. What the government did recently with the driver shortage, which people will have heard a lot of uproar about and probably not really understood, was that historically you you had to get a Class Two license, the the rigid vehicle. Uh, you had to get that license first, and then you'd have to have a second test to be able to do the class one license where you pull the trailer. The, the principle behind that is that it's more difficult to pull a trailer. It's slightly more technically advanced. You're looking after two assets, you're heavier, that kind of stuff, right? Um, however, what the government did to make it easier to pass your license, it recently, as, a, as recently as November, um, they enabled people to go straight to class one. So they'd be able to drive that straight away. And what they also did was they took the reversing part uh, which is the most difficult thing you'll do in an articulated vehicle um, is reversing. They took that out as part of the test with the DVSA examiner, and that's now being done privately by the company who do the training. Okay, that that sounds controversial. I am. <laughs> it was quite controversial, yes, and it is still quite controversial. Yeah. Nothing to do with fleet. I don't know what yeah. the fuck you're talking about, but just how you described that, I'm like. <laughs> That sounds like if I was a fleet manager, I'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and to be honest, so from a fleet and operations point of view, the risk, the risk has massively increased for yeah. new drivers recently because you're getting less experienced drivers. Because generally speaking, drivers would get a class two license. They'd go and drive a rigid uh, vehicle for a bit period of time and then they'd go and get a class one. Now, you know, I've been out, with drivers on driver assessments so one of the things that we have to do is driver assessments right where we go out a new driver just because they've got a license and they're qualified to drive a vehicle it doesn't mean that they're competent to drive a vehicle right yeah so one of the things that you should do and a lot of fleets don't do is an initial driver assessment where someone goes out with a vehicle and you know i've come across new drivers who'll drive a tipper vehicle like it's a car and it's like slow down and you're like slow down <laughs> for those of the people that are listening i'm like pushing my imaginary brake pedal um and literally hanging on for dear fucking life and fortunately that vehicle you know it roll over that that kind of thing's a real problem so um yeah i don't know i've lost my thread there's so much to share man there's so much to share I, you don't even realize how much knowledge you have until you start talking about it like yeah mate you know what i mean like Look knowledge look at you you're like you're surprised at how good you are I, I'm, I'm just surprised yeah i'm just surprised i, I surprise right. myself all the time when i tie my shoelaces all sorts <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna walk out of the room after this podcast you're like, i am fucking good yes no laces <laughs> no laces <laughs> i also have oh no they're downstairs i also have chelsea boots just because they're so much easier just to whip on and i'm always late like I'm always running late. So I'm like, boom, 
built myself some capacity to fail safe. There you go. Definitely. Um, definitely. Right. I, I literally live my life 15 minutes behind. I'm just 15 <laughs> minutes late for everything. Yeah. I feel like that's part of running a company now. Like I, I never used to be this bad, but now I'm just late for everything. Uh, everything runs over. There's always traffic. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So I'm I'm still not massively okay in in the operator license field. So like a driver license gets you qualified to drive the vehicle, yep. or operate the vehicle. As an operator license, does what does that say that you're competent to? deal with the whole part of being a driver is that is that yeah yeah got you so drivers don't get an operator license so they class and and this is interesting because in other industries the driver's classed as an operator isn't he so from a health and safety point of view if you're in a safety background you see the driver as the operator whether that's on a dump truck that's like off-road on a construction site or whether that's a vehicle they're the operator well when it comes to fleet operations, which involve HGVs or buses, the operator is the business that run the vehicle. Uh, so they're classed as the operator. So when we talk about operator licensing, we talk, we're moving away from the driver licensing and we're moving to the regulation of the business and the activities it undertakes. Oh, okay. 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 So okay. Op- op- operator, operator licensing is for vehicles. So companies that operate vehicles over three and a half time, although very recently, the laws changed where vans that do international work into Europe now fall under operator licensing. So the idea behind this is if you if you want, you know, rebranding safety, right, we're going to get into haulage. Uh, I'm going to buy some vehicles and we're going to go and set up our business where we're going to employ drivers to, I don't know, we're going to we're going to do a 32-ton tip of work, right? Let's go with that, right? That's never going to fucking happen. <laughs> you've said already <laughs> two episodes yeah so <laughs> mcpherson mcpherson muckaway i like it right you're gonna start mcpherson muckaway right okay i'm interested i'm interested yeah. okay cool so mcpherson muckaway uh what james needs to do to be able to do that is he needs to submit an application to the office of the traffic commissioner for an operator's license okay right. Now, there are three types of operator's license, okay? Number one is a restricted license, okay? So a restricted license is for people who carry their own goods as part of their business, okay? And we work we work really well with these people, okay? So a restricted operator is someone who, a good example is your fruit and veg seller at the market, right? They've got enough fruit and veg for their market, which is heavier than what would be carried in a van. So they need to have maybe a 12 ton, a 12 ton small sort of two axle rigid vehicle where they take stuff to and from the market, right? right. I don't know, let, let's call this uh, James's Jalapenos, right? <laughs> <laughs> so You should be in market, I love it. <laughs> James's Jalapenos has uh works on well Welly well, 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 borough market right and you've got an operating center you've got an operating center in corby right where you park your hgv up right so what you do is you do an you do an application to the traffic commissioner where you'd have your operate your operating center you declare your operating center and you'd send your send your o license application in and to do and to ha- operate a restricted license where you only move your own stuff it would mean that james's jalapenos wouldn't be able to carry out i don't know amazon multi-drop 
for hire and reward separately because that doesn't meet the operator standards because right. it only allows you to be able to carry your own stuff. So builders, merchants. If my so, mate, if my mate Pete Pete's potatoes. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. He rang me up and like, dude, my lorry's broke down. Could you bring my potatoes over? I couldn't yeah. do that within my license. No. Right. No. Unless you bought the potatoes from him. Right. And they were your potatoes. So, which I would only do a percentage increase of 40% anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> Prices of potatoes are going through the roof, mate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, you get the gist of it, right? Okay, so, right. for a restricted, for a restricted, operator currently there's no requirement for a competent person or what's called a transport manager which we're going to talk about in episode two which is someone with the transport manager cpc qualification okay now what you then get is you've got standard national and standard international okay so they're the two other types of licenses which mean that if you want to carry goods um for hire and reward so you know, uh, I don't know, DHL, for example, right? They're doing like distribution stuff, yeah. uh, that kind of thing. Um, if they're doing that within the UK, they'd be classed as a standard national license. If they wanted to do it within Europe, they'd be cla- or elsewhere, they'd be classed as standard international and, and, and so forth. So, uh, and to be able to do that, you have to submit your application and you'd have to have what's called a transport manager. Um, if you're a large company, they often have internal transport managers who will be employed. Usually, I would say salaries range from 35 through to like 60, possibly more grand a year, depending on the level of experience, the size of the company. Right. Some bigger companies will have you know, multiple vehicles across multiple depots. So they'll probably have a head transport manager with, with a team of transport managers below them. But likewise, James's Jalapenos or, no, sorry, McPherson Muckaway, yeah. if they went for a standard national, you would need to have a transport manager who might be an ETM, an external transport manager. So that's where you employ a freelancer to come in and do that role because you've maybe only got one or two vehicles and you can't afford 35 40 grand a year on a full timer mate i'm boring you already look at that look at that yawning oh, Is it got to, it's actually got to that time i reckon we're around 45 minutes shall i just stop now i think you- <laughs> you'll find out about the rest in episode two see you later <laughs> class is about to start anyway um oh god look if if you're if Do you want a blanket do you want a blanket yeah, um, I've got my coat here. Look, it's all like outside. Uh, <laughs> Ready I, to go. I've got a blanket. Look, I could actually. There you go. My feet are a bit cold. Um, no, I was just fucking yawning. Why is everyone taking right. yawning so personal? Oh, I'm, I'm boring, yeah. Mate, I'm not getting all hormonal about you yawning. I couldn't really care. I know, I know, I'm interested, and what I'm talking about is right up people's street. I know that I am fucking awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> I fucking love. No, okay. Like my, if I'm honest, my brain fucking hurts. Okay. This is complex, right? Like, yeah, fairly, so yeah. messy. I, I, I kind of like it as well. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested. I, okay. I there is like a load of, I, I want to kind of touch on, we hadn't really planned to touch on this. We won't spend too long on it. Um, But I do want to touch on this, like driver shortage, like, was there is there a driver's shortage or or not? Like, does that actually have you got a driver's shortage? Like, yeah. So there, there there's there's a thing, right? There's a thing. Oh, you um, like look out the window and you're like, do I want to be honest on this 
or yeah shall i take the easy answer or shall i take the, the, the not easy answer or the flagship answer <laughs> i think so it's interesting the driver shortage is a little bit it's a, it's a little bit like the fuel crisis right it's probably the best way of me trying to explain this okay so the fuel so is it like the fuel crisis? I don't know. Right. So essentially for years and years and years and years and years and years, there's been a shortage of drivers, alleged shortage of drivers, right? Because what happens is, is it's a shit job. Largely it's a shit job that's been underpaid, undervalued, um, highly regulated. And, you know, drivers can earn, fairly close were earning fairly close to minimum wage or just above it and they're away working all week a lot of the time um and if they broke the rules they could get fined they could get points on their license they could get you know their license taken off them um so generally speaking people viewed it as a fairly shit job that they didn't want to do and they could probably get work elsewhere for much less risk personal risk yeah so that's been bumbling along for a long time. The, dra- the driver CPC qualification that got bought in in 2009 was largely very unpopular, usually because the training was mandatory and was crap. Um, and drivers just got fed up of having to spend five days, normally Saturdays, having been away all week, that because it was part of their license, a lot of companies would expect them to turn up in their own time for mandatory training, which they wouldn't get paid for. And oftentimes they actually even had to pay for the training themselves. And the quality, quality therefore was diabolical. Right. Um, and still to a point is for a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, that um, made like a race to the bottom, then I assume. Like we, we, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no other industry. So I've got competitors. So we deliver driver CPC training. I've got competitors who are doing it online since COVID. They're able to do it on Zoom. And there's many of them that are doing it for £35 a day. £35 for a driver for a day, which includes, I think they include VAT and I think they include upload fee of £8.75 to the DVSA. So they are literally making £20 a day per driver and they're not allowed to train more than 20 in a day. Yeah. And that's if they get all the drivers signed up. Like there's people out there that will be doing it for like five drivers at £35 a day. I don't even know how they make ends meet. And that, that, that has been... So generally speaking, if you, if you were in the sector that we're in, we have to differentiate on quality, which is what we do do, which is why we've got our lovely new training centre and we offer lunches and we have the very best trainers to be able to deliver to people because we demand on delivering value. Anyway, uh, that's my little pitch done. I'll shut up now. Uh, <laughs> um, that, that, to be fair, I don't think people buying driver CPC will be listening. So that's cool. Um, so I'm, I'm pitching to an empty room, but where was I? What was I bullshitting about? Oh yeah. I, I wasn't bullshitting obviously, but I'm chatting shit about the driver shortage. Um, I think, the media like a story. So they cottoned on that there was a shortage of drivers and um, which, which one of the issues was, so COVID caused an issue, Brexit caused an issue because there were so many Eastern European drivers who then went home during COVID and then weren't going to come back because it was shit. Um, Wages have since with supply and demand, wages have now increased and largely speaking, the driver shortage 
probably only exists for the arsehole companies because people won't fucking work for them. So you'll hear them talking about a driver shortage, but it's actually because they're arseholes and people don't want to work for them. The good companies have got drivers, generally speaking, because yeah. they're good companies and they look after people and, and that kind of thing. Um, okay. So, so, yeah, and I think the increase in wages is, I, I believe, I haven't got the data to back this up, but the evidence is showing that the wages have started to stabilise now. And I think what's happened is that people have found their way back into it because the benefit to them, you know, there's, there's drivers out there now, they've gone from a lot of the time being paid close to minimum wage. And there's, there's drivers now who are, you know, topping out 50, 60 grand a year for driving an HUV, which is good money by anyone's standard and way above the national average wage. Um, But it's not, it's it's not an easy job largely but i think the thing is that people don't realize is people often fit hgv drivers into one category but actually there's hgv drivers in every bloody industry they could be doing waste and recycling they could be doing skips they could be doing tippers they could be doing multi-drop they could be doing distribution you know they're, they're, there's just a myriad of removals uh builders merchants like literally anything where you've got to move shit they they need drivers right so they could be in any type of industry yeah yeah and i think it was good good to kind of maybe double down on the driver for a little bit here because the 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 thing that that fascinates me about fleet management and hgv is is the onus on the driver so like particularly when a lot of the work i do with clients um and we'll be talking about or are we talking about, it's not no blame. I'm not a fan of no blame. It's, it's, it's more, I don't want to get myself into a fucking rabbit hole here. Um, how, do I, how do I kind of say this? So so essentially, I, I tried to educate and help clients be like, look, our priority is to learn from this incident, for example. So actually, it's probably better for us to not have a conversation around accountability right now. Let's save that for another time. Now we're going to have a conversation around how do we learn from this? To do that, I need that operator to be really open and honest with me and they're not going to do that if they think they're going to get the fucking wrist slapped right they're not going to do that they're going to go into ask covering mode so psychologically speaking i need to have i kind of describe it as votes i need to have more votes for learning than i do blame like that so we can still have votes for blame but we need more votes for learning but in hgv which is fascinating to me because there's so much of this i've got one client like i say that is working in in a large um fleet of 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 hgv and one of the biggest issues is is just human error like there's so much emphasis on the driver to operate in a really complex tiring intense environment for long periods of time battling boredom or low arousal as you would kind of say in the human factors world you know all of this stuff dealing with dickheads on the road as well like all of this stuff you're mega complex on and we're trying to kind of have conversations around human error and learning and building good relationships with them but ultimately there's this kind of shortcut to blame the driver because legally the driver has a lot of like legal duties completely separate from the company right yeah, yeah. So, so here's a great example. Just, just today, just today, I was having a conversation with a driver who's been driving years and years and years. Good guy, means well, doesn't mean to make a mistake. Um, diligent, understands the rules around him. 
right? Just to put put people in the picture. I'm not going to name the guy I know who he works for, but I issued I issued an infringement, what's called an infringement letter for him today. Right. Okay, which which basically warns him is a warning letter that tells him that on his tachograph, which is what's used to record his working time using the tachograph on the vehicle, um, last month he had a potential three hundred pound roadside fine which I have to, which has to be notified to him as part of the regulations. And he has to sign to say he acknowledges it. And he rung me and said, I don't fucking understand why I've got this infringement letter. Right. And when I, on first look, I thought, actually, do you know what? This is a bit of a tricky one, right? And to give you, put you in the picture, he dro- he works Monday and he has, hold on, let me find, let me find, because I, I drew it out and wrote, drew a picture on my phone to show him um so monday he starts at three in the morning okay right nine minutes past three having had a weekly rest he had what's called a reduced weekly rest which was 42 and a half hours when a regular weekly rest is 45 hours he started at 0309 he finished at 1650 10 to 5 in the evening having had a duty of around 13 and a half hours he then had a daily rest of just over 10 hours, okay, which is classed as a reduced daily rest. He then, on Tuesday, starts at would five. Have, would he have been driving from three in the morning till four in the afternoon, was that? Yeah, so a driver, an HUV driver is only allowed to drive nine hours in a day, of yeah. which he's allowed to increase to 10 hours twice in a weekly period. So that duty period will have made up of driving, what's called other work that the tachograph records. So that might be loading and unloading, yeah. uh, waiting time, which might be waiting for information or waiting for other people to unload him yeah. and also breaks. So breaks during the day will be included in that duty time. So that's start to finish. Okay. Yeah. So it's a long day, right? Tuesday, he starts at five to three in the morning and works until 20 past one in the afternoon. Uh, sorry quarter past four in the afternoon having had a shift of 13 hours and a bit uh and then has a daily rest of almost 10 hours which is then a reduced rest as well on wednesday he starts just before two in the morning and works till half three in the afternoon and has a 13 and a half hour duty and then he only he has a 12 hour five minute rest uh rest which he thinks is a long class as a longer rest so in his head he's had a longer rest and then on the thursday he has what's called an infringement because he takes a short, a long, he works another long day and a short rest, thinking that he's allowed one of his three. So the EU driver's hours rules allows in a working week, um, drivers should normally have a minimum of, I've got to get my numbers right here, um, 11 hours rest. And anything less than 11 hours is classed as a reduced rest down to nine hours, okay, which they're allowed to do three times within a working week. It's very, very complex, and that's why you've got driver CPC training. So HUV drivers are governed by two rules, two lots of rules. One's driver's hours rules, which is a European Commission 561-2006, okay, uh, which was updated in August 2020. And then the second set of rules is what's called the Road Transport Working Time Regulations 2005, um and these are slightly different because they're for mobile workers who are affected by tachograph you'll know working time directive which is where you have to sign out of the 48 hour rule yeah yeah well hgv drives are classed as mobile workers they can't sign out of the 48 hour average 
Right. Okay. <laughs> what that does mean, though, is their duty time might be longer than 48 hours in a week and often is. But what it doesn't account for is their break period during the day, their uh, POA, which is called a period of availability where they're waiting to work, potentially. Um, yeah, it gets really complex, mate. It gets really complex. So your driver that you're talking about there, he's received a fine. Yeah, a potential fine. So he's got an infringement letter. If he got stopped in the next 28 days by a DVSA officer roadside, he may be issued with a fixed penalty for 300 quid for that fine, for that, for that. What for Surely his hours and the shifts that he do are driven by the company that he's working for. Yeah, absolutely. So there's an interesting, it's like a joint, joint venture between the, the driver and the company. So Generally speaking, for a minor infringement, that's what he's done there is classed as a minor infringement. Uh, generally speaking, that would be dealt with roadside. He'd be fined. Likelihood is uh, the... So it gets really complicated, right? So the operator has what's called an operator compliance risk score, OCRS score, okay? Um, and that is based on... You have two types of encounter roadside with the DVSA. You have what's called a traffic encounter and a vehicle encounter. So you have traffic examiners and vehicle examiners. A vehicle examiner is like a mechanic who will look around the roadworthiness of the vehicle. And you've got a traffic examiner who's the one who understands the driver's hours regulations and he'll check the tachograph. The traffic examiner is who will find based on the performance of the tachograph. And the vehicle examiner may find the driver based on the condition of the vehicle. However, that vehicle is then listed on the operator's license, which then goes back to the business themselves. Now, if there's an adverse encounter, i.e. a driver gets a fine or has broken the rules, there's an impact also on the operator for the compliance risk score. There's like a risk rating or a grading based on that. And then also what's taken into account is MOT failures, for example. So if that HGV goes down through an MOT, the license, the registration number's on an operator's license, um, that MOT failure will go against the operator. And all operators, um, uh, all companies who operate vehicles will have an OCRS score. They'll have an average MOT pass rate that's monitored. You'll be able to see how their how many vehicles have failed, what they've failed on, and all of those things may trigger a DVSA visit. And then what happens is, is you've got these different, it's like a traffic light system for the operator based on the DVSA scoring. So you've got grey for new operators who have got a no licence, had an operator for two years or less whilst the data's still been gathering. Uh, you then have red, amber and green based on the risk rating or the risk profile of that operator, which is based on the data of previous roadside stops and MOT data and that kind of thing. So, for example, if a vehicle gets stopped roadside, it may be issued with a prohibition. What's, uh, so the prohibition will mean that that vehicle can't be moved or needs to be recovered to a place of repair because... You know, it might have a bald tyre or uh, it might have something mechanically uh, unsafe with it. Uh, essentially, the driver could get penalised for that because the driver has checked the vehicle and is therefore signed to say that it's, comp it's uh, you know, fine to go on the road. But also there'll be a negative impact on the operator, which may, may trigger a visit from the DVSA. And in severe cases, the operator may get taken to the traffic commissioner. So the traffic commissioner 
who sits at the top of the tree has a DBSA report into them and they then look after the road safety via both the operator but also through what's called driver conduct hearings as well. So the driver may be called to a driver conduct hearing. For example, if the driver on a vocational licence gets caught using his mobile phone and gets a £200 fine and at six points, the transport manager for the operator is duly required to report that incident to the traffic commissioner where the driver may also get called to a driver conduct here and may get a four-week ban from his vocational licence. Very interesting. So, yeah, it's just a whole new world, mate. whole new world for you. So, uh, in fact, I... I did. I did a little bit of prep, right? You know, traffic knows. Huh? No, no, no. But the traffic commissioner. The thing is, is I've got to make sure I'm quite precise because yeah, yeah. other people in the industry, if they listen in, they'll, they'll be looking to make sure that I'm precise, right? So, um, the traffic commissioners have what's called statutory documents. Okay, uh, I've got numbers one to fifteen here. Uh, there is, if if people want to Google or search statutory document number six from the traffic commissioners. That talks about vocational driver conduct. It was first issued in 2019, or the most recent um, edit was 2019, May. Uh, But yeah, vocational driver conduct, and therein will lie the the conduct expected from vocational drivers. Um, And sorry. No, I'm just going to, I'm sorry, you're trying to be precise, and I'm I'm asking loads of questions. the one thing that just kind of stuck out in my head there. Mate, by, the, by the way, we've smashed the 45 minutes. Just uh, Yeah, go you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still on air. Uh, I mean, I've completely lost track of time. Um, which, yeah, it's fine. Don't worry. I think, I think it's about, it's probably about an hour. Okay. So, um, so what was I going to say? What was I going to say? Right. So, right. Driver does something not good right like a minor infringement and driver gets fined Sim- I'm, I'm like oversimplifying this right so anyone listen to this who's trying to pull pete up for saying well no no don't, don't buy something i said then don't be a dick right i'm trying to simplify this for my own kind of well the audience for me so driver that minor infringement driver driver gets fined that kind of it's a negative point on the operator licenses kind of dial that goes from red to green in its simplest term that's kind yeah, of p- potentially yeah one incident normally wouldn't require a wouldn't potentially change the color of the but a, a series of events made it yeah and that's actually my point right in that i feel like i i feel like that could be manipulated in the company's favor in that you push the drivers to bend the rules a little bit just get a little minor infringement or or or, you know hopefully not get caught because the company is not going to get that much infringement because one or two you know on a balance of statistics it's not really going to affect our our dial so we can push it for a couple of months because we're really busy because we're in green let's just push it for a bit with the hours or with something else and the driver is going to get pinged 300 pounds so i feel like the driver kind of gets a short straw here i don't know i might be wrong yeah and that's not yeah so not yeah not strictly true. So it depends. There, there is always a balance between profitability and performance. And the 
so potentially the operator, if they lost their license, they'd lose their business and all the drivers will lose their jobs, right? Yeah. So there, there is a balance to be had and the operator and the transport manager. So the transport manager personally is, is responsible for that fleet of vehicles so that he, he does or she does have a personal responsibility that's part of their undertakings, which is statutory document three uh, about the transport manager undertakings. Um, and yeah, so ultimately the, the risk to the driver is, it, it, the risk to the operator is still um, relatively high. They can, you know, if they go to the traffic commissioner, potentially they can have their license revoked. They can have their operation curtailed so they could lose the number of vehicles. Um, yeah, there, there, there's a lot, the, the traffic commission has a lot of power to be able to um, punish uh, punish uh, poor operators, wow. um, if that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I understand it from, from a people point of view. It may, it may seem that the driver has got, so the driver's responsibility is to stick to the rules, right? So... Generally speaking, in my experience, a lot of operators will expect, will allow drivers to manage their own time. So sometimes on a minor infringement, it will be a mismanagement of time, a mismanagement of um, of the taco. And actually the operator hasn't, the operator is expecting um, deliveries to take place, for example, but they won't necessarily stipulate when. And a lot of the time drivers will be personally incentivized, potentially, because they want to get home for the weekend, for example. So the the more productive they are during, you know, the the incentive may be there. The more productive they are during the week, uh, uh, in you know, it might improve the time that they get home right. later on. It may it may not do. I'm just sort of, I guess, I'm just spinning wheels there. Really, um, there's lots of reasons, and oftentimes the rules are very complicated because the drivers have working time and the EU drivers' hours rules to contend with. Because it's so complex, a lot of the time the mistakes are just possibly through ignorance. Yeah. I feel like that relationship between traffic manager and driver is is vital. Like, yeah. yes. There's always that balance, but I feel like there's definitely space in there, in that relationship to be like, look, you look after your drivers, they'll get the job done and they'll look after you. Like, I feel like they've got that much legal duty on themselves that your job is to just enable them to do their job because they want to turn up, they want to do their job, they like their job, you pay them well, you look after them and everything will be fine within reason. Um, but then they're still, they're still operating in like an unbelievably complex environment, aren't they? Like the roads themselves are just... Yeah. No, it's not those. Yeah, the human factors element's huge and, and and largely underestimated by operators. If I if I went into any of my operators that we help and I started talking about human factors, they'd look like look at me like I've grown another head. Yeah. It's just not a language that's used. But yeah. actually, there's probably not not an industry that human factors is more uh affected by. This, this is literally because... my kind of fascination around it. It's a, I, I remember, I'll see if I can find it and I shall send you it. It's fascinating. But there's, there was a psychologist I listened to in a podcast that was talking about flow. So, you know, I don't know, have you heard of, have you heard of flow? Getting in a state of flow. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 When you're in a state of like, 
peak uh kind of focus so you're you're like really focused on something you're you're motivated by it and you're just in this this pure state of flow where you're just going you know you imagine like your, your brain is flowing and everything's kind of working and you're like yeah um and and then he ended up talking about distraction right and he said if you're distracted from uh, a point of flow so you're really concentrating on something and something just comes in and completely takes you out of that focused state which uh, driving is a good example of that or it can be really focusing on like where you've got to go because it's a new junction or you know something really complicated and you're like right i'm going around here and you're, you're focused on your your maneuver and everything's going on and then all of a sudden some dickhead in you know a little forward focus just a boom, straight back completely distracts you right it takes you an average of 20 minutes to get back into that state of flow according to the scientists right and the impact on your temporary iq is more impactful than you've smoking a whole joint of weed and then driving. So you're better off smoking a joint of weed than you are being distracted statistically and scientifically, you know, theoretically speaking, obviously don't smoke a joint and go for a drive. When you get busted, just go, well, at least I'm not being distracted because you're just to be a dick. But like, I just found that fascinating. And then when I was talking to like, Again, a client of ours who, who does a, a lot of work with this stuff and, and a lot of work with fleet management, and, and he's trying really hard to build relationships, good relationships with the union, with the drivers. And I just, it's such a challenging environment to, to, to deal with. And it's kind of, as you've really beautifully kind of articulated to us, like it's not really helped by the so complex environment on the legislation side and the regulation side as well. But like, I'm not saying that's a bad thing because it's necessarily needs to be there. I get that. But ultimately it, it is complex. So you've got complex regulation, complex working environment anyway. And then on the complexity of the road, it's just like, whoa, what the fuck? Like no wonder people are making out right? Yeah. And in, in reality, when you look at the when you look at the accident statistics, it's actually van drivers that are proportionately much more likely to be involved in the fatality. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, um, you know, when so just I guess just just sort of to, to add on the, the undertakings for a driver on the operator licensing. The rules on driver's hours and tachographs are observed and that proper records are kept and are stored and records are readily available on request by an examiner to ensure vehicles and trailers are not overloaded. So that's a driver's responsibility. I think the issue with the operator is that they may be managing multiple drivers into tens to 50 drivers. So for them to be able to monitor overloading, um, essentially the operator takes responsibility for training of, of the drivers. Um, but ultimately when they're out on the road, it can be very difficult to manage them. You know, they're essentially a remote worker, right? Um, all, all vehicles operate within speed limits to ensure drivers promptly report any defects that could prevent safe operation of a vehicle or trailer, that defects are reported in writing and to ensure all vehicles and trailers, including higher vehicles and trailers are kept in a fit and serviceable condition. So the, the driver has a lot of responsibility, both, for they have legal duties both for their timekeeping um but also for the condition of the vehicle and and, and the weight of it as well yeah.
Bosh. <laughs> Should we talk about accreditations? You know, yeah. So then in the midst of all of this, we've got something that I know nothing about, and that's fours. So what yeah. the hell is fours, Pete? So fours, fours is a great question. Um, and people will have heard fours and they'll have seen those little blue stickers on the side of trucks, yeah. uh, which has got like a, a wheel. And then it's actually the River Thames that runs through it. The, the squiggly line is the River Thames. Uh, so it's created by Transport for London as a stealth tax. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I'm literally going to be found dead one day. <laughs> literally, literally, fours was founded on a load of brown envelopes. No, <laughs> If you're found dead off a massive conspiracy that you've just blown up off of my podcast, we are going viral for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, this is um yeah, fours is like um the intention of four. So fours stands for the fleet operator recognition scheme. Can you hear me by the way? Because I've just like heard a ping in my ear. You're hearing me, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. So yeah, four stands for the Fleet Operator Recognition Scheme, and it was started, uh, I believe, by the Transport for, by Transport for London, and it was to they recognised that there were a lot of what we call vulnerable road users around London, i.e., people without these metal cages to keep them safe, uh, where they if they interacted with a vehicle or a metal cage that they were likely to come off worse than potentially the, the, the driver of the vehicle. So, yeah, um, like cyclists. So yeah, yeah. So a vulnerable road user is essentially a pedestrian, a cyclist, um, a motorcyclist. Right. Um, yeah. You know, so, so that, that's essentially any, any type of road user um, that, that hasn't got a metal cage protecting them. So um, what, what FORS does is FORS can be enforced by what's called work providers. So a good example is the HS2 work that's going on at the moment. They will stipulate that operators running this, running on their scheme need to have FORS, for example, or construction sites in London will say that operators who run into London will need to have FORS certificate. And there's three standards, bronze, silver or gold. Um, the bronze standard is actually the most rigorous uh, of them all um, and you have to have certain risk assessments and policies and procedures uh, to to enable you to be forced bronze and then silver is like a, a little step up uh, which is norm- more focused around the environmental side things like monitoring fuel consumption and, um, uh, and noise pollution and those kinds of things and then gold is is sort of the next step up after that um, and normally is involved with what you do from a promotional point of view around road safety and, and those kinds of things and being an exemplary operator. So um, we we help operators become force force compliant. And there, there's this standard, it's very it's, it's similar to an ISO, but for fleet operations basically. Um, it isn't so what what you will find is if you ask one of the traffic commissioners what they think of force, they generally have a fairly dim view of it because they see it as a commercial standard rather than an actual legitimate sort of a, a, a standard. You know, there, there have been cases where 
um, operators who have just been passed for their four standard have gone to a public inquiry with the traffic commissioner and had their license revoked because the traffic commissioner has found that their operations haven't met the standards uh, for operator licensing. So um, fours can be a force for good commercially. Um, and if, if the standards are followed, it will do a business good. Um, but sometimes the the auditing standards can be you know often the auditors are freelance and sometimes you know the auditing standards can vary in quality um so we do do fours we do support operators with fours generally speaking it's because they see a commercial benefit from it um my preference longer term if an operator is thinking about wanting to demonstrate a high standard of operations i would recommend what's just come out that flagship are going for approval on which will be the dvsa earned recognition standard so that is the standard similar to force but it's been designed by dvsa the driver and vehicle standards agency and earned recognition is very rigorous um, and it's an audit standard again similar to an iso where operators are able to digitally report to the DVSA on both their traffic and their vehicle side around their maintenance procedures, and they can be audited. But additionally, the earned recognition scheme is very rigorous in the way that it tests to make sure that your evidence in the policies and procedures that you've got in place, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's very, it very much tests to ensure that you can evidence um, and demonstrate the the standard that you're demonstrating that you're you're operating to. That's interesting. So you said, you said that. I didn't know whether that was sarcastic or not. That's interesting. I'm trying to think of a way to. It's kind of. Like, it's kind of like the HSE going. We don't really like ISO, so we're going to kind of make our own ISO because we think ISO is too commercialized. It's kind of what what that sounded like. I well, I don't. Yeah. So I don't. I don't really know what's behind it or triggered the reason for doing it but essentially it's kind of what you've just said so to give you an idea i talked earlier about the operator compliance risk score right so you've got this red amber green scheme right well earned recognition operators are what's called blue okay so it's kind of they're like the cut above and what the dvsa and, and the thing is is the dvsa a government agency right and they've got like all other government agencies they've got a finite amount of resources so they want to make sure that they're getting the best bang for their buck and making sure that they're having the biggest impact on road safety that they can have right so yeah. if they've got these operators that are blue that they know are sharing their data readily in their kpi reporting with dvsa via mot reports demonstrating that their vehicles are maintained on time, uh, making sure that they've got a proper defect reporting system in place, that they're properly trained drivers, that you know they've got a proper infringement process for managing drivers, and they've demonstrated all of that and then been rigorously audited proactively to do it. What's the point in them having a roadside encounter with a, with a blue operator? They're not going to be pulling those operators over. They're going to be able to focus their time on the red operators, the rogues, the people who aren't following road safety. Right. Does that make sense? So the idea, in principle, it's a it's a great it's 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 a great procedure, and I believe in it because actually, if if the government, if we're going to employ DVSA examiners, they might as well be catching the crims, mightn't they? Mm. Yeah. And that's that's the strategy, if that makes sense. And the reason you have red, amber, green is that if a 
if a DVSA examiner is roadside and they're making ad hoc stops and they've got a choice between stopping a green operator who is demonstrably in previous, by previous history, they're demonstrably better in that they've had more positive roadside stops, they've had a better MOT pass rate, et cetera, et cetera, when it comes to the AMPR on that number plate and they've got a red operator, they're more likely to stop the red operator for obvious reasons because they're more likely to have a problem. And the whole idea is, is that it's kind of this ecosystem of trying to keep the roads as safe as possible and make sure that only, you know, operators are, are running legitimately and drivers are following the rules and those kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. Hmm. That is, that is quite interesting, actually. I know that sounds like I'm being sarcastic. I'm not. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> I hope people have found it interesting, a bit of an insight into how these things run. Yeah, like it, it works. I knew it was complex, but shit, like it's that's really complex. And then when you add on that that interesting little bit there, you said about like fours, and I think we we experienced that with with eighteen thousand and one, and I think that's a part of an attempt of what forty five is trying to do, but not sure if it's going to work. In that it's it's become commercialized and it's become a badge and it's lost its meaning in that. It, it, to your point, like you said with fours, you get a good a good auditing, a good accrediting company, and you get a company that wants the not just the badge, they want the badge, but also they want they believe in the intent of the badge, and they they kind of implement forty five thousand and one in its spirit, and not just you know they follow it to it, it the spirit of the accreditation and not the letter of the accreditation. Then essentially it's a force for good. If you just do it to get the badge, it's kind of a force for nothing or or essentially a force for bad uh, to mislead. So yeah, I, I find that interesting that fours kind of seems to have that same battle in that it can be done right. I think, be done. Yeah, and I think I, I've got to be conscious to give uh, an impartial view on, on, on things because I've got operators who pay us good money and they pay good money to be members of fours um and i think if i'm being really really fair on my critique of it it is that if like you say you've just you, you you've just uh and, and, and it's almost very similar to the iso thing and that is if operators are going to use it and they're going to implement it in their business and they want to do it in the spirit of the way it should be done it will make a good impact on their business mm. and if they win business that they wouldn't have won off the back of it that's a positive thing for everyone involved, both commercially and from a fleet safety point of view. And we have gone into operators who, you know, as part of doing the fours operation, we will look at their operator compliance and we'll bring the both up uh, as a standard. So that's a great investment of their money. It's a great investment of their time. And also the benefit of four, there are many benefits to fours. And I think I've probably a bit unfair on it uh, around the requirements to train drivers. Yeah. Um, you know, so one, one of the things for four silver is drivers have to do what's called a safe urban driving course. And that's where drivers, as part of their driver CPC, they'll spend half a day out on a bike and experience what it's like to be on a bike, which a lot of them may oh. not have done. Yeah. So that's a mandatory course for four silver. In principle, that is that is not not a bad a bad thing at all. Right. So. There, there are elements of it and, and there's so many, you know, the, the, we talk about cycle safety for fours. We talk about um, vulnerable road users. We talk about even like um, security and te- anti-terrorism. So things like 
you know, things that were never Ford started talking about things that things were never talked about, like vehicles being used for terrorism, right? So having control of the keys at all times for the driver. Drivers wouldn't have thought about that. They'd leave the vehicle idling whilst they made a delivery, and someone could jump in and go and use that 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 vehicle to go and smash up a load of innocent people. Yeah. So you know, I think I think I, I think I get I get frustrated. I get frustrated when sometimes standards are used for purely the commercial element and and the 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 safety message gets lost yeah in translation and i think that that's probably how i came across and i'm probably starting to maybe regret it a little bit but you know i've not said anything that i i want to retract because i don't think that pete at all i think i think it you know, it's, it's it's so similar to a lot of stuff in safety, and I, and I think you're you're probably a lot more balanced in in the way that you describe it as the way I describe it to for my side of things. Um, but it's kind of very similar to like the the professional membership discussion that we had in that you know it's there for a good reason to have like a badge, whether it's for a company or a professional or whatever, and it's got its right intent. But it the manner in which we've used it as me as meant that it's lost its meaning so really it's like and fours is probably early doors so it hasn't really lost its meaning yet but if we continue to misuse it it, it you know everything created it can is, is it created for the intent of good most of the time yeah and people use it for the wrong reasons and it and lose you know it devalues it the internet is a beautiful thing but there's some people do some right nefarious shit on there do you know what i mean it's like <laughs> It, it, it is what it is. So yeah, no, I don't think I don't think you came across like that. Definitely. Okay. Cool. Um, right, mate. Mate, I think we. Yeah, I was gonna say I think we're the board listeners. Like uh, there, there is a crash course of literally operators licensing. Yeah, my bummer. So I know that that means that it's time to uh, time to stop. Stop. My, my bladder's starting to burst. Yeah. 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 Oh, mate, that was um, a baptism of fire into the com- complicated world of fleet management. I re- have grown respect for you today that was already there, but it has it has grown bigger today. Your, your wealth of knowledge on that was impressive. So thank you very much for enlightening us on, on that, Pete. Um, obviously, you know what you're talking about. So if somebody listened to this and been like, fuck me, I need to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about and fleet management... Obviously, you're the place to go. So how do they do that, mate? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, people could talk to me or, or obviously one of the very experienced team that we, we employ. Uh, my business is Flagship Partners. And uh, yeah, we can help people from grey company car fleet because we've not really talked about company car fleets and vans today. There hasn't been time. But those those risks still exist. Whilst the, they may not be operator licensed, the, the, the risks still exist, making sure that drivers don't drive tired, making sure that vehicles are safe for the roads and vehicles are properly serviced and maintained and have their MOT and all, all that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, we can help people with all that sort of traffic management type type stuff. Um, we help with public inquiries. We help with uh, operator license applications. We help new transport managers because one of the things that we will touch on later on is that transport managers who are newly qualified and passed their exams it's a bit like health and safety just because you've got the badge it doesn't mean that you're competent to do the job um so we you know fleet geeks as a community of transport and fleet managers so have a look at the group on fleet geeks on facebook 
we've got a group there which is free you can join the community um, we're setting up a peer-to-peer mentoring group if that's of interest for people where they get to meet other transport managers from different industries and find out best practice and that kind of thing um but yeah flagship partners yeah the home for training for consultation um you know we do we do do safety type stuff but a lot of our stuff is really geared towards this industry that we we all me and all the team we've sort of grown up in and understand awesome love that we shall put websites and all of the links yeah. up. and we've got the podcast too fleet geeks podcast uh and my podcast is a half dozen things where james has been james has been a guest yes yes i have yes i have which is my longest podcast to date actually Woo. Because James wasn't boring like I've been. <laughs> no, because James can waffle shit for a long time. Yeah. How's, how's it been actually having to stay quiet whilst I've just waffled on? Painful. Painful. Has it? Has it? Sorry. Mate. I'm like, fuck, I've got to do two more episodes with this guy. And one of them's got three of them coming on. Like, I'm just not going to talk. Oh, mate, you, you need to try and shut Mike up is going to be your problem. Mike's our transport manager, CPC trainer that's used to having guys for like two weeks at a time. Mike, if you're listening, shout out to Andy Dunn. Uh, Andy, if you're listening, I really appreciate your help. He, very short notice, just made sure that I prepped to make sure I'd got the dates for the different regulations and stuff like that. The shit... I focus on the shit I need to know, right? Because there's so much to know. I don't need to know what date a certain regulation come in. I just need to know what's in it. Does that make sense? So obviously I needed to be precise in the information I gave and he just made sure that I had that data readily available. So Andy, big shout out to you. He's one of our driver assessors and trainers. He's a, he's a data guy. He's a, he's very capable. So yeah, thanks Andy. We all need an Andy done in our lives. We all Do. need- I- a lot of fleet operators need an Andy done. If you want a driver assessor, He's your man. Yeah. Andy Dunn. Here he is. He's listening to this. He's like, God, stop saying my name. Andy Andy Dunn. (laughs) Andy Dunn. (laughs) Andy Dunn. (laughs) Andy Andy Dunn. Uh, (laughs) Bye, mate. I enjoyed that. That was entertaining. It was educational. It was mind-blowing. It was everything we asked for in a podcast. Thank you very much. I hope people have got some value from it. Cheers. I will, mate. Okay, peeps, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pete. I told you it was technical. This guy knows his shit. And then we're going to go over to episode two next month. So make sure you come back for that with your pen and pad. And then, like Pete said, in episode three, we're going to have three of them bringing over the fleet geeks. And we're going to chill out a bit more and and kind of find out the the pros and cons of the industry, the gripes and the the groans and really get into it. And, um, you know, if we could do it face to face, still trying to work out whether we could do that Um, but if we could do it face to face if we can do it face to face it'd be kind of like just having a couple of beers and chewing the fat about road traffic and safety and shit catch you next week safe the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.